And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Crew Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf, and returning after a five-year hiatus, Hugo Nebula and World Fantasy Award-winning author of the Dandelion Dynasty and brand-new short story collection, The Hidden Girl, very special guest, Ken Liu on the Crew Street Podcast! Welcome back, Ken. It has five years. My goodness. Uh, Hi, Gary. Did we talk about, uh, we were talking about uh, the beginning of the Dandelion Dynasty, I guess, the last time you were on. It's hard to believe that it's been that long. Uh, I can't believe it. But yes, I guess that much time has passed. Well, I'm glad you have a new book out now. And and this is also interesting because uh, for all you've been doing for your career, this is still your own, only your second collection of stories after the paper. Only? Only. <laughs> okay, this is one of the things I, I noticed. This I, I remember saying this when I reviewed the paper menagerie, that there are writers who, as as soon as they amass a number of stories, they put out a book, and that's almost never a good idea. And when the paper menagerie came out, one of the things I admired about it was that there were a lot. Most of your stories were not in it, uh, and that's still true of this one. I, and, and this one is. Has got a lot of stories which actually predate the Paper Menagerie collection. But you said something really interesting in the introduction, which I think is absolutely true. And that is a first story collection, whether you like it or not, is seen as a presentation piece. It's seen, this is what I do, this is the, so, so there's a self-consciousness about presenting yourself to the public. The second story collection, not so much. You can more or less depend, more or less choose the stories that you like just because you like them. That's right. That's right. Um, Gary, you're, you're absolutely right on that. Um, uh, I, I have a lot of short stories written over something like uh, a span of 20 years. Um, and uh, it's true that I didn't put most of my stars into the two collections. And the Paper Menagerie and Other Stories is a little bit um, different in that most of the stories in there were picked um, because there could be some sort of external gauge of um, their uh, popularity, uh, whether mm. it had been nominated or, or gotten great critical reviews or something of that sort. Um, whereas with the second collection, which, you know, as you know, um, it's been five years since the first one, mm. um, I wanted to put together a collection that reflected my own idiosyncratic taste a little bit more. Um, and so these stories were sort of picked just because I thought they were interesting um, and represented what I did or show, showed off some of my obsessions in a particularly interesting way. Um, and so I put them together. One thing, I, that, one thing that has to happen ahead, is that putting together a book like you know, the, the Hidden Girl and Other Stories has to be a moment of reflection. Did you find yourself realizing th- things about what you write that you weren't aware of before you put the book together? It it, it did, actually. Um, I realized that there was a shift in the way um, I wrote stories and in how I thought about um, topics that interested me before I had kids and after I had kids. Um, almost all of these stories mm. in The Hidden Girl were written after I had kids. Uh, and so I think they, um, whether consciously or not, uh, involved more of the meditation on the parent-child bond um, and the idea of passing on one's values through stories. And that's actually become a new 
theme that I discovered in my writing that wasn't obvious before. Um, uh, so for the first book, I explained that one of the things that I um, that to me marks my own style is a deep interest in literalizing metaphors. Mm-hmm. So I take some uh-huh. aspect of reality that's usually spoken of metaphorically, and then I make it literally true in the world of the fantasy or science fictional world. Um, with the second book, I discovered that there's a new theme that I've become more and more interested in, which is the whole idea of stories being the vehicle in which we understand and pass on our values, more so than abstract definitions and um, rigorous philosophical um, uh, uh, debates. Um, what I mean is this. Um, so um, if you think about some sort of some virtue that you care about a lot, patriotism, uh, generosity, honesty, courage. Um, when you try to think about what these words mean, it's not necessarily a dictionary definition that comes to mind. What almost always comes up in your head is some, what I call a, 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 a prototype story, a case, either something that a loved one performed in your childhood that exemplified that act, that virtue, mm-hmm. or some story that you were taught in grammar school. So, for example, for a lot of Americans, the idea of patriotism is very much linked with the idea of Nathan Hale staring down the British soldiers and saying, I have, but I regret that right. I have but one life to give to my country. Um, or, you know, when we talk about liberty, a lot of uh, Americans hear in their heads, um, give me liberty or give me death. These are the stories by which values are passed down, not so much by, um, by an abstract definition. And I, I became more and more fascinated by the idea of values being encoded in stories. And when we pass on values, we're, re- we're, we're really trying to um, use our own lives to create a story that embodies that value for the next generation. So that became more and more of a thematic concern um, in the stories. Okay, this is going to sound really... Um... It's going to sound really stupid, I suppose. But the the question that you, when you talk about stories passing on values, that raises the question of what are values? Mm-hmm. Uh, seems to me to come up again and again in the stories as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the lead story is is um, um, the the one called Ghost Days, and it, there's a question which is a very familiar question to anybody who's taught. You've got a group of students who are studying the history of humanity, but the students themselves are not human. They're they're sort of genetically altered aliens on a distant planet. Post-human, if you will. Yeah. Post, post-human. They're, they're, they're post-human. And when they ask, the que- they ask the question, why are we holding on to a culture that doesn't even share much genetic history with us? Uh, that's a very dramatic version of a question you get from, from kids all the time, and certainly from mm-hmm. students. Um, and then the story, just to sort of give a little bit of background, the story moves back to a Reagan era America, and then it moves back to Hong Kong in, in, in 1905. So that seems to be a recurrent question in all three time periods in that story. Uh, but the one that haunted me was, I thought those kids had a point. You know, <laughs> why do they need to know about the history of an Earth which they will never ever ever see? Mm-hmm. That that is incredibly. Um, uh, uh, it's a good question, and as you know, most of my stories bring up these questions, but then it doesn't provide you with a neat answer because I don't think there are neat answers. Um, the, the, 
the the little girl at the beginning of the story that you note who raised the question of you know why are we studying all of this in the end nonetheless so it's a it's a setup in which the oh yeah students are trying to put on a pageant of, of past great heroes of earth if you will of humanity um, and and it, it's incredibly artificial and strange and then she decides in the end she would do it. But she would do it by giving the new meaning. She would do it as a as uh-huh. a way to not just reenact the past, but to show her determination to take the past but carry it into her new future, her own story. This uh-huh. is this is a thing that I um, return to again and again, which is what is the point of history and what is what is our relationship to it. I don't think the 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 answer should be we reject the past entirely because I don't think. Um, uh, rejecting the past entirely is either possible or even a healthy thing to do. I think what makes much more sense is to incorporate the past uh-huh. into your own story in a way that strengthens your own story, empowers your own story. Um, we uh, So, you know, uh, a thing that I return to again and again is we are each of us the hero of our own epic fantasies. Um, and the idea behind that is um, unlike stories handed down to us in a book or or uh, uh. taught to us by some authority, our own stories are in fact not never going to end until the day we die, and we are in charge of the direction it's going to go, and we're going to constantly craft it into a way that gives our own lives meaning, allows us to pass on the values we care about, and mm. in that sense. Um, the meaning of the past is not so much that we have to blindly obey the past or think that the past is the the, the source of all meaning, but rather the past can become part of us and allow us to extract from it the same kind of resilience, the same, of, same kind of adaptability, um, and the constant um, uh, search for meaning that allowed our ancestors to survive cataclysmic change after cataclysmic change and allows us to have the strength to go forward and do the same. So the three nested stories, kind of like Cloud Atlas, uh-huh. sort of shows that idea. It's the idea that in every case, the protagonist has to make an accommodation between the past and the future and then comes to a, a ambivalent compromise that is meaningful to them, even if to outsiders, it doesn't necessarily make sense. And they always move forward in that way. So uh, the protagonist of the alien protagonist, the post-human protagonist, post-human, yeah. ultimately reenacts the story, puts on the play, but to her has a completely different meaning than her teacher uh, mm-hmm. wanted her to take from it. And that, to me, is the key um, of this kind of move. Well, I, I, w- I want to get back to post-humanity because that runs throughout the whole collection in, in various ways. But but just staying with, with, with Ghost Days, the other thing that the three central characters, as I say, one in the far distant future, post-human, one in California in 1989, I think, mm-hmm. and one in Hong Kong in 1905, they, all those characters have dual identities. Uh, the, 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 the girl is both human and not human. Uh, the kid in 1905, he's, he studied in England, so he's got sort of ideas about ju- British jurisprudence, which he's trying to break back to his dad in Hong Kong. And the kid in uh, one of the more Mordant images, I guess, is you've got a, a I guess a, a, a kid, a Chinese American kid in the 1980s who decides to wear a Reagan mask, That's which right. just says all kinds of things. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, so, so many of your characters are are two characters at once. And I was one of the stories I was going to bring up, uh, which I just read today. 
you've got a story in the new Avatar's Inc. anthology and Vandermeer's anthology, and even that one is about somebody operating a remote mm-hmm. uh, U- UMA, utility maintenance, what is it called? Uh, uh, utility. Avatar, I you? utility maintenance. Um, it's not Avatar? I thought it no, was. it's not Avatar. Um, it's anyway. Util- well, what, whatever it is. I mean, and once I... Once I once I stopped picturing that robot as Uma Thurman, uh, I realized <laughs> <laughs> this is also a story about somebody being in a consciousness in one place and doing things in another place. Of course, that's the theme of the whole anthology to some extent. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, it's very common in your work. Mm-hmm. I think um, to me that just sort of is the way I literalize much of the dislocation that we get from modernity. Uh, I think all of us sort of experience this idea that we are living in two places or embodying two consciousnesses or two roles all at the same time or two or yeah. more. Um, I mean, um, it's it's uh, it's becoming more and more popular and open to speak about code switching and the way yeah. we adopt different personas in different contexts. You know, um, you 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 listen to these interviews uh, uh, about online trolls and they are always saying, "Well, you know." My real life persona is not nearly so aggressive as I am online. Okay, but you know why? Why is it that that that's the case? Why is it that we we are so ready and so um, so able to 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 easily adapt to the idea of having multiple selves and yeah. just present ourselves in these different ways? And I feel like that is part of uh, of modernity because um, one of the consequences of global capitalism and globalization is. The promotion of free movement of peoples. You, you, usually that's spoken of in uh-huh. a very positive way, but there's a negative aspect to it too, because the free movement of peoples really um, isn't just to promote democracy and to promote freedom for the individual. It's also to promote access to easy skilled labor um, anywhere in the world to lower costs and to allow um, uh, capital to, to mm-hmm. be more efficient. And so the result of that is all of us now sort of live in this idea of um, of being rootless. You know, how many of, of the professional managerial classes um, live in the same place they grew up? Not that many. That's so true. many of us now move on to some other city um, and, and in search of opportunity. Again, um, this is this is key, right? Because, you know, going back to the whole idea of stories and values, there are always multiple ways to describe all of these things. One of them is the positive story of embodying some positive value about individual liberty and freedom. Mm-hmm. The other is a much more negative dystopian vision about reducing people, uh, commoditizing skill into um, uh, a kind of um, um, easily accessible resource that can be shipped around the world and extracted easily, human resource. Um, uh-huh. And which story becomes dominant and which value becomes the dominant value depends very much on who you are and where you are. Um, and But this sense of dislocation is very key to 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 the modern exi- to modernity and to the to the experience of modernity. I mean, but you know, it didn't happen in the last few. Years, certainly. In fact, you could argue that this has been happening for several generations, uh, especially since the days of the great colonial um, empires. Um, but I, I feel like this idea of dislocation, of, of yeah. embodying multiple roles and trying to uh, um, live with multiple consciousnesses and straddling different spheres of existence uh, is a very 
uh, resonant and modern image and something that I talk about a lot in my stories as a result. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the uh, themes that runs through uh, through the collection, uh, I should say a, a story that runs through the collection, because there are about a half dozen stories that seem to be part of the same future history. Mm-hmm. And, That's right. And it's, I kept, I, 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 a week or so after finishing this and, uh, and, and, and writing about it, I, I had a feeling I read a collection of short stories and a pretty good novella uh, about the the, the f- future of uploading, basically the future, That's the right. singularity. Uh, and and those stories, they I, I looked them up. They didn't all appear in the same place. They weren't all in FNSF. One, one was here and one was there. But nevertheless, there was a clear chronology that made me want to know more about what happened. And and some of the mm-hmm. stories are clearly uh, the left behind story. I've, the, the characters are called Left Behind. I forget which one of the stories. It's that is. Uh, staying behind. That's the staying behind. Okay, yes. but, but, but the phrase "left behind" is used in that, mm-hmm. and there's something just elegiac about the idea of a, of, of a world depopulated because everybody decides to migrate, um, and the way it's handled is is that you've got a good chunk of a novel there, don't you? <laughs> Mm-hmm. I do. That's that's how this um, that series was conceived. You're 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 thinking of um, thing behind altogether elsewhere, vast herds of reindeer, and then the three the gods God will, will be you know, series. The All of them are setting the same universe. You're exactly right, um, and they do sketch out sort of a, a future history. Uh, it's it's uh, not all that different from the way um, Orson Scott Card at one point wrote about the Worthing Saga, I think, which were you know written originally as a series of separate yeah. short stories, but really all in the same universe. This is this is sort of like that. Um, I did originally conceive them um, as parts of a novel, sort of. Um, what's the term where you take a bunch of short stories fix and up, fix, fix up? up. Yeah. yeah, they they were. That's right. That's right. That's right. They were story suite is much more elegant. I I like that. They were originally intended for that purpose, but then I realized that actually I kind of like them staying apart the way they were, and then Uh just I thought I would put them together in this collection and then surround it with other short stories. So yes, the feeling you got that there's a there's a novella in there plus uh, a short story collection is actually quite accurate because that's the core, uh, and the other short stories sort of comment on the themes in there. Yeah. Mm But you've also this is something you do a lot, uh, and I, it's a, I'm, I'm a sucker for it, so I like it. But and that is to write stories in what I I, I think of as packets, because that really is a series of packets of one long story. And then there are stories like uh, Seven Birthdays, uh, which are stories within stories that move further and further and further and further into the future. Back in the uh, Paper Menagerie, you had a couple of stories that were basically catalogs. Uh, mm-hmm. That's right. Right, the book making habits. Uh, that right, starts the collection. That was one. So, yep. and you get the impression that you have so many ideas, you just have to get them out there uh, in, in in various ways, and uh, in, even in the same story. It, it's more that I think sometimes the some ideas are better presented in that way than as fully sketched out, character driven stories. Um, here's what I mean. I mm-hmm. I, I think. Um, you know, because we talk so much about character-driven storytelling yeah. these days, we tend to think that that's the only good way to tell a story, that, that mm-hmm. other ways of, of evoking a story or, or conjuring world are just not as good. And, and there are good reasons for that, because, you know, for too long, um, sci-fi has had this reputation in the old days of just not being interested in characters at all, and, and just, yeah. you know, the literature of ideas. And I, I totally get that. But I think there are 
places and times where you can be a little more experimental and and try to play with the whole notion of narrative energy and narrative structure um, to try to tell stories that really are just about ideas as characters rather than actual characters that you're supposed to be emotionally. Evolved mm-hmm. with, um, I think the short form um, in sci-fi and fantasy is especially good for this because um, because the stories are really short. You're not demanding the readers to invest a huge amount of energy into something that they ultimately uh, will feel they cannot resonate resonate with. Um, so you can afford to be a little more experimental and try to tell a story that is just a catalog of ideas that evoke certain moods rather than specifically bringing out characters. I mean, I know that um, uh, I'm hardly the only one, um, you know, um, uh, lots of other writers have done this. Uh, and, and I'm very um, uh, drawn to the experimentation involved when you're trying to tell stories in which you askew some um, aspect of traditional storytelling, be it character, plot, uh, what have you, and then just try to see if you can actually do something that sustains its narrative energy in another way and then gives the reader um, an experience to But I was going to say that, at least in Seven Birthdays, what was interesting to me is, is, is that you were doing both at once. I mean, this mm. is a story, this is a story, let's face it, it's a story about an, a, a, a bad mom, about an absent mom, a mom who's not <laughs> right to the kid. And anybody, anybody who is a, I, I was talking to my stepdaughter today who's got her last kid, and I was thinking, I, actually, I'm never going to tell her this story because she's going to think that an absent mom <laughs> Not paying attention to the kids is going to have an impact a million years in the future. It's going to be the worst kind of butterfly effect. If you don't pay attention to your kids now, something will happen to the universe in the infinite future. I love that reading of it. Um, I, I, how how can I how can I follow up after that? But it's it's, it's a lot of. I mean, there there are a few other stories. That have followed that thing. There's a famous, I don't know if it's famous or not, but it's in a fairly early Jonathan Lethem story called Five Fucks. And it does the same thing. It leaps a, a thousand years and ten thousand years and so forth. And so he's not dealing with a character. That story, despite going into the distant future, is still a story about parents and children. Right. That's probably the, the, the one, um, relationship the the key relationship that I um, emphasize in this collection more um, than anything else the the complicated fraud relationship between generations uh, yeah and and the way we both revere our parents and then ultimately end up having to um, carve our own way uh, and and out of their shadow uh, so many of the stories are really revolve around that that part yeah. Of it. Do you, I'm curious. Um, you know, you, 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 your career started roughly about 2002. You get through to about 2014 when uh, the paper Menagerie comes out, and that gives you a, ch- a chance to really stop and think about what you're doing with your short fiction. And now, nearly six years later, you're doing the hidden. The hidden girls come out, and it's the same thing. Did your approach to writing short fiction change after? putting together the paper menagerie and given that the hidden girl was put together not that long ago are you finding that then is something that's flowing into what you're writing now yes um i i will say this i think the way i approach short fiction has changed uh dramatically not necessarily because of the paper menagerie and other stories um it's more 
the my work on the Dandelion Dynasty um, that's that's changed it. So I've devoted um, an entire decade now to the Dandelion Dynasty, uh, and for the last three years, I've done nothing but uh, practically nothing, I guess, except working on the final installment of the epic fantasy. Um, and because so much more of my energy is spent on just that one thing, um, the the amount of uh, the number of short stories I've been able to write and the amount of time I can devote to them is significantly less than when before I started working on the epic fantasy. And so um, I've, I've realized that, that um, I just don't do as many tiny thought experiments anymore. Uh, there was uh-huh. a time where I used a lot of flash fiction to run thought experiments, to do very quick experimental pieces. Um I no longer do that just because I don't have the time for it. Um, my short fiction assignments now tend to be in some ways longer, heavier, and more, um, uh, uh, more dense as a result. I just don't do as many lighthearted, um, or just very single idea stories mm-hmm. anymore. I think one of the things, uh, that's changed in the last six or seven years is that most of my short stories do not tend to be much messier in the sense that they don't have a very easily resolvable, describable single plot or point that Hmm. you can sort of say is the point of the story. Almost all the stories I've written, I mean, I've, I've, uh, Jonathan, especially since I've worked with you a lot on a lot of these stories recently, you probably have noticed the same. Um, Many of my more recent short stories tend to be novelettes or similar at novelette length. And they tend to have multiple ideas that are locked together in some complicated fashion. And there's always, they don't resolve in an easy way. There's no easy metaphor. You can sort of say, this is what the story is about. Um, you know, I may write a story about uh, a world filled with dragons. And then after you read it, you'll, you'll, you'll be like, is this really a story about the opioid crisis? Is mm-hmm. this a story about ecology? Is this a story about, um, something else? There, there are many several, there are many things going on here and it's not so easily resolvable anymore. And I'm sort of more drawn to that kind of aesthetic. I like stories that are less easily resolvable to one thing. They, they, they seem to say many things at the same time, but no single message. Um, so I feel like, um, my short fiction now has grown to be more ambivalent, more, um, more, both more optimistic and pessimistic, I guess, uh, because, you know, that they, they're not, they don't have a dominant thematic note anymore. They tend to be more reflective of the complexity uh, of the world that we live in. Do you find that short fiction still continues to be an important part of, of how you approach storytelling and part of your write, writing process and armor? You know, I mean, you've written two volumes of the Dandelion Dynasty that are out in the world, and somewhere in a dark room in New York sits the manuscript for the conclusion to that, or at least the the, the finale to that. Um, and yet, I mean, it's quite often when people write novels like that, that largely ends their short fiction writing career. But that's very much not been the case for you. You've kept writing quite prolifically at short length. Uh-huh. So it must provide you with something else you can do that you feel you can't get out of working on novels or large, larger stories like that. Right. I mean, the Dandelion Dynasty is such a huge, sprawling thing. And it's, it's a story in which I'm working out 
a lot of my thoughts about um, constitutionalism and and all the ideas I've been mentioning here about values and stories. Mm, yeah. And um, in fact, the way I would summarize the Dunsland Dynasty is that um, if there's one sentence to describe. But the key theme is it's that stories, good stories are more important than good institutions, um, which, you know, we can dis- mm. discuss at length later on. But that's the key idea. Good stories are more important than good institutions, um, which I think actually has become a dominant idea in the way I think a lot about modernity and the way um, why some democracies function and some others don't. Um, and uh, but. That's the kind of the Dunlop Dynasty is about epic storytelling. It's it's about the fate of nations, uh-huh. how a whole people tries to uh, come up with its own myth. But you can't always think at that level because when you're working at that level, there are many other interesting stories that I want to delve into that I can't. I mean, there's no room really in the Dunlop Dynasty for me to um, explore my thoughts about online trolling and cryptocurrency. I mean, yes, there's always a way to somehow make a fantasy analog, but right. that's not as that's really not the way I want to do it. Um, so when I do um, uh, have a story idea that is very much not going to fit into the Dungeon Dynasty world, um, I need some other place to sort of work it out. Um, writing stories is a way for me to work out um, a lot of these complicated thoughts and to try to um, understand them better. Um, I used to have this... Um, idea that in order to understand a technical subject, you have to actually program program it, meaning you have to write code that does the calculation or, or makes that thing do that thing so that you can truly understand how it works. Mm. And I think short stories now serve a similar function to me. Um, short stories are a way for me to work through the emotional as well as the social implications of some idea that 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 fascinates me. And by putting characters into these situations so they can work out their conflicts and for me to see all the implications of this idea, um, it allows me to actually understand the situation better and allow me to come to some kind of conclusion as to um, how I feel about a situation. So a lot of times these short stories are a way for me to implement um, uh, a, a thought experiment or a social a bit of social speculation uh, and for me to fully work out their implications for myself. Okay. If short stories allow you, or sorry, if writing novels brought complexity and nuance to writing short fiction, what do you think short fiction brings to writing novels now that you've written a million words of epic fantasy? Um, ironically, uh, <laughs> not brevity. I mean, if I, but no, no, I really was going to say that actually. Ironically, I think short story has taught me a lot about how you can achieve a lot with few words. Uh, my novels can be structured as massive, strong narratives, but there often are very small self-contained episodes within them where a character shows up uh-huh. to do their thing and then they just leave. Um, my short story experience actually allow me to do things like that in a way that I felt uh, uh, is I can do much better than if I didn't have that experience because I do like the idea of structuring the novel as a long strand with the main through line, but there are little side mm-hmm. pearls dangling off of it. And I can do those little dangling pearls using the techniques of the short fiction. And often um, what I've learned is um, the ability to do, um, to get a lot of emotional, uh, pack a lot of emotional uh, punch into a very short scene. 
and there's a lot of ways of saying much by writing little um, that that I think short fiction taught me. Despite the fact that the novel is so sprawling and long, um, <laughs> but uh, I wonder if there's also a difference of re- if if it's possible or necessary to draw a distinction between your science fiction stories, which tend to be very focused. They, you're, you're right; they, the, 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 they can focus on the on trolling, for example, uh, or on the the one called Byzantine Empathy, which which deals with very real issues, uh, and. And, and nails the issues in a in a kind of intellectual and emotionally disturbing way. But the interesting thing about uh, the Hidden Girl and other stories, there are only about three or four stories in it that we could consider fantasy. And and one of those we should mention is a preview of of the Veiled Throne, a preview of the last uh, a volume of the Dandelion Dynasty. But the other two, one of which is original to the collection, the other two are um, the Hidden Girl itself, uh, which I I I don't know why I've got Uma Thurman. <laughs> on mine tonight. It's a very skilled female assassin who, who, who you want to see more of. You want to see what's going to happen right. with. And then the original story, uh, which is the title, let me, Grey Rabbit, Crimson Mare, Cole Leopard. You're putting together a group of superheroes that we just want to see in a novel then. Right. Uh, the, both of these stories seem to want to open out into much bigger narratives, whereas the science fiction stories seem to focus in with a laser-like intensity on specific issues. Maybe that's just because when I'm doing fantasy, um, so much of what I love about fantasy really is world conjuring. You know, as, as mm-hmm. Joe Walton put it, um, it's it's the whole idea of um, because the way I write sci-fi often is about taking the real world we already have and then just extrapolate it out a little yeah. bit and, and add some technology to it. So in some ways, world building in my sci-fi, it's a, it's feels to me easier than world building in fantasy, where I have to often do a lot more work to get the whole, um, uh, the, all the rules of the world, uh, functioning to, to my satisfaction. And so, uh, my fantasy does often have that tendency to become origin stories for some world that I want to do more of. And, you know, if there were infinite time, I would like to return to a few of these worlds and do more. I mean, like the, the world of gray rabbit. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of a post-apocalyptic Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, <laughs> with shape shifting um, people. Uh, it would be fun to actually return to that and do more of it. Uh, sometimes I, you know, when I'm dri- driving around the state, I'm thinking, oh, you know, what would it be like if this were the post-apocalyptic world and, and you know, of my novel and now what kind of things can happen here? What animals would, would people here shift in? What it would be like if Harvard was completely <laughs> underwater and you know, Right, right. Or that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, maybe, we, we, we might take a moment to unpack what you were talking about a moment ago, about this idea that good stories are more important than good institutions. I think I know what you mean by that, but what do you mean by that? <laughs> so, um, so I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, reduce the idea to some sort of political treatise, which it is not. It's, it's a, it's an idea that's much more, um, that makes much more emotional sense, if you will, than, than strictly logical. What I mean is this. Lawyers, especially, you know, I myself am one, mm. uh, we're often trained to focus on the idea of institutions and rules being the most important part of a functioning society. Um, because that's the part that we tweak 
and the part that we we argue about. So we often tend to think that the way you make a society better is to just improve its institutions, to do technical fixes mm-hmm. to make it better. Why do democracies work? Well, it's because the institutions of democracies are good. Um, why do some democracies function better than others? Well, it's probably because there are institutional tweaks you can do to make it work better. My argument is that often is actually backward. I, I don't think that necessarily works. Um, you know, uh, the, the reason I say that is because institutions do their work best when they're just strictly following the rules and there's nothing unexpected happening. Mm. As soon as something that was not ever imagined by the framers of the institutions come up, now institutions are at a loss. If you don't have the soft connective tissue of a shared narrative in the society around it, there's no way to evolve the institution in the right direction. I'll give you a concrete example. Um, the U.S. has one of the world's oldest constitutions, and then it's mm-hmm. often criticized. If you compare two constitutions of later states, um, even terrible states like the Soviet Union, you'll find the U.S. constitution is actually horrible and, <laughs> and, and antiquated and yeah. full of all kinds of technical issues. Uh, you know, for example, the Senate is not actually democratic or representative. The fact that the Supreme Court institutionally has evolved into a kind of oligarchy, yeah. um, a voice of the past. Um, all of these are institutional issues. And so um, so the question is, then, how did the U.S. survive for hundreds of years as a fairly functioning, functional democracy mm-hmm. with large uh, swath of, of, of crises that had somehow passed. I mean, we've had multiple constitutional crises and they've been resolved. And the reason they've been resolved, I argue, is that we have always been able to route around the problems with the institutions by having a good shared story. Mm-hmm. So, for example, for the longest time, um, we had these uh, constitutional difficulties with integration until Brown versus Board of Ed. Right. Um, at the time, Brown versus Board of Ed came out, people hailed it as an awesome decision that propelled the country forward. I personally think that the understanding is actually flawed. It's the other way around. The decision, when it was first handed down, yeah. was widely condemned by many in the know as unconstitutional. They saw it as an institutional failure. Uh-huh. The only reason it later on became the foundation of modern constitutional jurisprudence in the U.S. is because the narrative around it changed. But the reason the decision was made was because the narrative of the civil rights movement around it had propelled the the, the judges and the justices to realize mm-hmm. that the existing institution no longer worked. They had to make an institutional change to follow the new narrative. And so there was actually a constitutional revolution embodying that decision that threw out a whole line of cases and started a new line of cases. It was, you know, a little revolution. We just don't see it that way. We saw it as an institutional evolution, but really it's a narrative-driven change. Uh So my point is basically that even though the U.S. Constitution is flawed in so many ways and its institutions are not necessarily the best or the most efficient or the most democratic, we have always been able, because people and revolutionaries as well as patriots have worked so hard every time to bend, to change, to shift the collective story of America in the right direction so that institutions followed the change in stories. So if a people has a shared narrative, a story that they believe in, bad institutions can be made to function and do the right thing. But if you have the most well-planned institutions, say many modern democracies, um, 
many newer democracies that seems to be constantly falling into coup d'etats and yeah. uh, constant violence in the streets whatsoever, despite having wonderful institutions on paper. It's because the people have not been able to derive or arrive at a shared narrative that they all believe in. Um, until you have a good story, the best in- institutions will not necessarily work. But if you have a good shared story, or at least a story that people are willing to pitch in and evolve in the right direction, then even bad institutions can be slowly made to do the right thing. Which so is, that's my argument. Yeah, that would be one of the reasons, I guess, these uh, the Supreme Court justices who've called themselves, what is it, originalists, the, the, the Scalia, the Thomas who just basically are rejecting the narratives that you're talking about and saying right. we need to try to read the minds of people in in in, in 1782. These are but but these are fights over over the story. And what's interesting is even when they're fighting over originalism versus you know living constitution, yeah, there's they're really essentially fighting over different versions of the same story because when they go back to quote from the Federalist Papers and so on and so forth, you'll realize that each of those writers was actually telling the story about how they thought American democracy would function. Um, you know, the the one of the most important epic story, um, epic texts for American democracy was actually written not by an American at all. It was. Uh, um, um, American Democracy by uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville, uh, yeah. A for- yeah, a, a foreigner who came to visit America, and he was writing about the story of America from his perspective. If you read it, which, you know, this text has become a foundational text for modern Americans as we sort of understand our own story, uh-huh. which is very ironic. Um, but he was really trying to point out all the ways in which America was America because of the stories that its people kept on telling themselves about what America was. How was America different from Europe? Why was America this new nation? Why, what made America so great? I mean, there were so many quotable lines from it that we constantly go back to even today. You know, he said, for an American, every day is a day of battle. This kind of idea of martial uh, of, 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 of individual, rugged individualism struggling against. I mean, all these images, stories, become very important part of the American soul. Um, and his constant discussions about America's love for town meetings, for local democracy, for, um, uh, for localism is reflected today in the fact that caucuses are such an important part uh, yeah. of our institution, which, you know, a lot of... Although nobody uh, understands non, them at a all. A lot of Amer- non-Americans fail to understand what, what this is about. Why do Americans love this sort of silly institution? Well, it's, they're not silly to us. They're actually very important to the way we understand ourselves because they're let, part let, of let, our let, story. Yeah, let, let, let me take this whole idea of shifting narratives, which is really what you're talking about, and, and, and shift that back Toward science fiction, which I, which may seem like trivializing a philosophical discussion, but nevertheless. No, no. There's a narrative of science fiction which has been challenged in recent years, and there are stories, again, to go back to the hidden girl, um, there's a story, the, call, the story called The Message, which in many ways could have appeared in astounding science fiction in the 1950s. It has a lot right. of, uh, we've talked about father-daughter relationships, problematic, but that's, but it's a puzzle story, uh, that in some ways, uh, looks to me, it, actually in some ways, it is very much like uh, Tom Godwin's The Cold Equations, except mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, inverted. So that seems to me uh, to be a contemporary science fiction writer critiquing a story told by an earlier generation of science fiction writers. 
you you can certainly understand it that way. Uh, and I think that's, in fact, uh, a very important part of um, the way sci-fi as a field moves forward. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, this goes back to the whole idea of what do we uh-huh. learn from previous generations? What do we owe to them? And, and what is it yeah. that we carry on from them? Um, there's, there's, I, I don't think rejecting um, the older writers, because oftentimes they told problematic stories is quite oh, yeah, the right sure. approach. Rejecting them entirely, I don't think that's quite the right approach. I think what's more interesting is sort of go back and see if their narratives can be pushed in a new direction that more clearly yeah. represents what it is we want. We want to take the, the, the sense of wonder they were evoking and this idea, um, the, the, the very cold but also moving beauty of, of, of humanity trying to understand an incomprehensible universe. There is actually a huge amount of awe-inducing beauty to these ideas. Uh-huh. We can take that, that aspect of the story and carry it forward uh, and charge it with more of the humanity that we now um, realize is so important that that's the spark that makes all of this uh, worthwhile. Uh, and so oftentimes a lot of my stories are in dialogue with older stories. And yeah. For example, The Hermit um, is a story that's in dialogue with a lot of old um, uh, Jules Verne's uh, adventure tales um, about, you know, Captain Nemo in the submarine. Um, it's in dialogue with these stories, but it sort of takes them and, and emphasizes aspects that didn't used to be emphasized and tries to um, write a story from the perspective of those who are refugees and who are um, who don't necessarily get to wield the power um, that the heroes of those stories always wielded um, and, and tries to uh, tell the story about their humanity um, and uh, our collective um, uh, endeavor to simply survive but also thrive. One of the things, yeah, that, um, I mean, you, you can't not be aware, for example, of uh, of the horrible Asians. Actually, there was a pulp magazine called called if it wasn't called Oriental Menace, it was called Oriental Stories, I think. I and think so, yeah. I know what you're and, talking about. Uh, and I remember talking to a guy, uh, oh, this is, we should, we should talk about this sometime over, over drinks. A guy named William Wu, who's not the science fiction writer, but there was a guy who was the head of the, uh, the provost of Case Western Reserve University, whose hobby was collecting horrible things about Chinese Americans. And he'd, he'd done a website on it and this sort of thing. Uh, and, it's kind of appalling until you realize almost um, hesitantly and, and, and resistantly that some of the stories were pretty good. If they had just been aliens instead of, instead of Asians, the stories themselves were not bad kinds of horror stories. And I, I think to some extent um, when, when Jeanette Ng, for example, uh, says what she says about John W. Campbell is absolutely right. Except some of those stories would be okay stories if they weren't so racist. And you do, by the way, we should mention that you do take on racism very, fairly directly in a couple of the stories in the collection as well. Well, I think you, um, if you study uh, classical science fiction, that aspect of it just can't be avoided. Uh, there's a huge amount of anti-blackness in a lot of the yeah, old, sure. older stories. Um, a huge amount of the, um, 
the perpetual foreigners of Asians. Uh, I mean, it's not just in sci-fi, but you know, Jack London wrote a lot of these yellow peril stories. Uh, oh, yeah. Sometimes uh, these are stories about celebrating genocide. Uh, we go back and, and look at these, and these are uh, they're really hard to get through. Uh, uh, but the, the the point is, you sort of have to 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 see. What is it that we can learn from this? We can't pretend that they didn't happen. I don't think that's no. quite the right thing to do. We can't pretend that they didn't exist. Um, and and if these writers were deeply influential on the entire new generations, what what is the right way to deal with their legacy? I mean, these are questions we struggle with all the time. How do you how do you deal with important figures? Who, nonetheless, um, uh, were deeply flawed in yeah. the way they they accomplished much, uh, and they also um, uh, did many things that even at the time they should have realized were horrible. You know, we, I don't think that the narrative that they were products of their time is always uh, as helpful as we think it no, is, because even at the time they actually should realize that these were horrible things to do, and they should have been doing it. Um, but. I, I, I think the more interesting thing to do is can we take those tropes and can we take those ideas and use them in the service of a new kind of narrative yeah. that is more inclusive and more interesting uh, and just fundamentally um, better stories. Uh, I think that's probably the best kind of revenge you can have, really, not not to make them into non-existent. No, <laughs> not no. to say that they didn't exist, but to say. Okay, well, here here's the idea they had. Let's let's turn it upside down and write a story that's much better. Um, that that actually inverts the the, the very kind of prejudice and fear um, that drove. Well, the, the, this is what's it's what's happening with Lovecraft now. It's what happened with yeah Victor Laval and and, and Kids Johnson and most recently uh, Nora Jemison, all recognizing that Lovecraft had powerful imagery, uh, and the thing. The thing to do is to steal it back from him and use it against him, in effect. That's right. That's right. You don't. You, yeah, exactly. I don't think you can. You need to simply pretend that they didn't exist. In, in some ways, that's sort of letting them have a victory. Yeah. Um, you, you can just actually co-opt it. Mm. And I, I guess that that's what you do with Campbell as well now, uh, finding ways to occupy that space and transform what he left as a legacy and make it part of what is being done now. Right. Why should what's sounding and, and, and evoking that incredible sense of wonder be, uh, be the province of cold, um, possibly racist ideology? Why, why can't we occupy that space? Yeah. Well, we, we could spend a lot of time talking about the ver- varieties of racism because for all the, um, which is, I mean, speaking as somebody who has, who clearly has Chinese ancestry, the, the Yellow Peril stories, which were popular in England from the 1870s on, they were popular in American pulp magazines. That was one kind of stereotyping. On the other hand, one of the few American writers to win a Nobel Prize for literature was Pearl Buck, whose book, The Good Earth, is a essentially a Victorian sentimentalized version of Chinese peasant life. Is that really much less racist than the Yellow Peril? Well, I mean, we, we, we used to not think so, but now we obviously... Um uh, have a more sophisticated understanding of these issues. Um, basically, the whole idea of speaking for the voiceless and sort of telling the stories mm-hmm. of people who cannot tell the story themselves, it turns out to be a deeply problem- problematic um, notion yeah. and, in fact, very flawed. Um, and I think we're still trying to work out 
exactly what that means because I still see a lot of writers uh, struggling with this and saying things like, well, if I don't write the story, the people that I'm trying to champion can't write it. So yeah. is, is it really better to have no story at all or to have a flawed outsider's narrative? Um, I, I don't think there are actually very easy answers to this. Every circumstance is different. Um, I, I think you, we are... I think that's what's interesting, right? Because um, I don't believe that um, you can make abstract rules about complicated situations like that. You have to sort of examine every single situation, the motive of everyone involved, uh-huh. uh, the reality of the power dynamics, and what it is you can accomplish without creating more harm. Um, and this is the sort of thing that all writers have to actually struggle with and try to do it right. Um, and... Uh, I, I feel that, you know, the field is getting much better because we are having these conversations, we're having yeah. these debates, and we're actually trying to encourage each other to do better um, and not make abstract, absolutist rules and say that somebody has the authority to dictate um, what exactly is the quote-unquote right, well, one and, right and, way. The, the, the idea, and it's a, it's a sensitive issue, and we could probably go on for another hour about it, whether... Whether any writer, uh, the, the appropriation issue, for example, I remember actually, uh, actually, I remember this. Well, because actually, we're in- just, just, just so like, I mean, you, you sort of see this sort of pop up in all kinds of interesting ways too. I mean, one very popular um, genre of of sci fi um, uh, right now is to uh, write about Chinese dystopias by yeah. Western writers. Um, and I, I don't think the field has talked enough about the problematic aspects of this, because oftentimes what ends up happening in these uh, Western visions of Chinese dystopia um, is that uh, we're essentially um, in the West using China as a, as a stand in for our own hopes and fears. So uh-huh. we sort of project our own politics into China and we sort of think that um, they that whatever um, is happening in China is worse than how we're going to how how bad things are here. So, you know, there but for the grace of God, go we, you know, sort of like, gosh, thank God that we're still not as bad. However bad Google and Facebook are, they're not as bad as the dystopia (laughs) that the Chinese are living under. I think that, number one, has a a really risky effect of making us complacent uh, about the problems that we're having. You know, it's sort of like um, by painting the what's happening in China as the the terrible thing, we sort of justify our own governments to go further than we would allow them to otherwise, simply uh-huh. because the the mark the bar has been set to be lower. Um, the other risk is we end up now having writers who claim that they're speaking for the Chinese who cannot yeah. speak themselves. When the reality is, of course, you know, China has its own very vibrant sci-fi culture and Chinese writers are able to tell their own stories in their own ways. Um, censorship is a very real thing, but many Chinese writers have been able to get their stories right. out. Uh, and so we we need to be respectful and to accept the fact that the notion of telling stories for people who cannot tell the stories themselves needs to be questioned every time you bring that up. It's it's not it's not an automatically get out of jail free card and seems no. often not a good idea. It, it may often be better for you to promote in fact I would argue it's almost always better to promote the voices of those who are speaking for themselves than yeah. to assume that you get to speak for them. 
Um, so that's one thing I, I will say. I have noticed that because, you know, I get asked to um, um, blurb books of this sort a lot. And I will just say here on the record that um, if you're trying, if you're one of those authors who's not Chinese and you uh-huh. write about a Chinese dystopia and you want me to blurb it, it's probably best to save your energy. It's not going to happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, one so of the I, things, yeah, it's interesting because... Uh, I think you're right. I think we project onto onto China things that we don't want to face in ourselves. I was talking um, to a a former colleague of mine who is a sustainability studies professor, um, and I was telling him about Waste Tide, the Chengkufan novel, which which you translated, and how horrible this this real island actually exists there. Uh, And and he said to me, if you if you look at where America puts its toxic waste dumps in relationship to minority communities, what are you talking about China for? The, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, that's why, you know, in my own fiction, I, I try to actually try to take a much more uh, global perspective because I feel like a lot of times um, – examining our own very, very flawed relationship with technology mm-hmm. and our own flawed relationship with internal um, um, internal prejudice is, uh, to me, much more worthwhile. It's sort of like, you know, I feel like male writers often can do a much better job of critiquing toxic masculinity rather than trying to mansplain feminism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's better if you focus on the thing you're particularly good at in terms of, of de- deconstructing structurally and, and making the world better. Um, and I, um, uh, I found that in a lot of um, my own work um, that uh, closely examining any aspect of reality sort of reveals the underlying narrative conflicts. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, whenever there's some sort of unresolvable um, uh, social issue. It turns out there's a huge di- uh, 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 division in the kind of narratives that people tell each other. I mean, for example, take online trolling. Yeah. Um, a lot of us have the dominant narrative in the media of trolls being, you know, terrible and how yeah. they they're the reason we can't have nice things. But the thing is, how do you define trolling? If you go a little bit deeper, um, all kinds of things fall into the category of trolling. And sometimes we celebrate trolling when we direct it, quote unquote, at the right people. Right. It, it becomes increasingly difficult to sort of uh, figure out what is what is what is the fundamental objection to trolling and and why we think it's bad. And you know, it may be that the issue is. Um, if you think the issue is about, uh, it, it, it always comes back to, should you be tolerant of the intolerant? You know, it's the fundamental problem right. of, of democracies and liberal societies everywhere. Um, and it's in fact actually not, not as easy to answer a question as, as you may think at first. It really in, challenges the foundations of, of the liberal narrative mm-hmm. of the story of what it means to be a free people. Um, so I think, these questions are much harder to answer than 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 they appear at first which is why a lot of my stories end up in very uncomfortable and biblical places because i don't think there are actually clear-cut answers well actually as we sort of circle around through this i'm curious uh and you've given some inkling as an answer to this what is it uh as a storyteller that science fiction and fantasy the fantastic now offers you as a way of Telling the kind of stories that you that you want to, that you could not otherwise do in some other form of fiction. 
Right. So um, I, I get asked this a lot, and I had to think about what's what draws me to yeah, yeah, writing yeah. sci-fi fantasy stories. At all. Um, I will say this. I think I think some sci-fi writers really do take it seriously that um, science fiction is about predicting the future, that they're engaging in a kind of futurism exercise. They're trying to predict the future. They're trying to work out what the future is like. They're trying to help us all prepare for the future better. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see myself that way at all um, when I'm doing sci-fi. A lot of myself actually is very hard sci-fi in the sense that they're based on real technology. They're based on extrapolations yeah. of real technology, etc. But that predicting the future is not my aim or interest. Um, I often create futures that are actually just absolutely impossible um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. What I think science fiction and fantasy can do that realist fiction or other modes of fiction can't do as well is that they act as a kind of filter on reality to uh, that allows you to see things you can't see otherwise. So we're all familiar with the idea of applying different graphics filters to photographs. Um, either they filter out a color, they either they make shadows more more and more prominent, or they make dynamic range wider. All kinds of things that exaggerate and twist and change reality in such a way as to emphasize certain things and de-emphasize other right. things. And I think science fiction fantasy does exactly that to our reality to allow us to see things that we otherwise cannot see, conflicts that are otherwise buried under complexity, um, threats and prepar- and and, and, and um and crises that are otherwise covered up because so many other things are on top of it and you can't see it. It's sort of a character, uh, um, an exaggeration, a kind of uh, filtered through reality that just allows you to see things in a stark way. It's sort of, you know, I'm I'm drawn to epic fantasy in in, in one example because um, in the modern age, it's actually very hard to talk about certain things like foundational narratives of entire peoples yeah. or the idea of good stories behind constitutions in realist literature. It's just too big and hot and too um, too idealistic in some ways for people to be able to even take you seriously if you try to do this in a realist mode. But when it's cast in epic fantasy, suddenly we're prepared to engage with these ideas in a way that we can't otherwise. Similarly, if you're going to talk about um, certain aspects of of, of 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 reality, like the way um, uh, uh, technology uh, changes our humanity, the way we're all becoming cyborgs, or the way technology increasingly squeezes out the public realm in favor of a oligarchic dominated yeah. private realm, um, then Sci-fi often is a way for you to highlight these conflicts and to to bring it to people's attention and to sort of address it uh, better than realism. It's a, it's a way of, uh, I suppose, the the term that science fiction writers historically have loved is extrapolation. The idea, you know, based up based on projecting a mathematical series into the future. Uh, but what you're describing is more like magnification. Uh, yeah, of, I think so. Current. And 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 the one story, the one story in the Hidden Girl and other stories, which I came away thinking of as a pure horror story is the one called Thoughts and Prayers, mm-hmm. uh, which which deals with it deals with a school shooting, which is a very contemporary issue. But more than that, it deals with how absolutely terrifying trolling can be. Uh, and there's not much in the story that couldn't happen like right now. Uh, right. 
it it also tries to I think one of the things that that I try to put into it um, that may not necessarily um, be obvious at first is that um, it actually describes in some ways a failure mode of our democracy, which is what happens when we can't agree on a shared narrative. Yeah. What happens when the trolls see the world in an entirely different way, and they're to the trolls in the story. The mainstream media are the trolls. Um, yeah. They're not the trolls. They're the, actually the only ones who are trying to be honest. They're the only ones trying to not cheapen and reduce an important policy issue to a bunch of emotional manipulation. They're the only ones. That, that they, they are sort of the bulwark of, uh, of civilization and rationality, uh, which is, you know, makes perfect sense from their perspective. But we seem to be stuck in this mode in America and in contemporary America where we have competing mythologies and competing stories um, that no longer come together into one shared narrative. Yeah. I mean, this is really, really kind of frightening. Uh, I mean, you know, the U.S. has gone through multiple times where constitutional crises occur. And I think we're sort of in the middle of one right now where there is a constitutional right. crisis because people don't agree on the story. Um, but this is this is what I mean. Good institutions are not nearly as important as good stories. Right. Uh, we 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 are going to question the legitimacy of elections. We we already do. I mean, we we already question very much the legitimacy of the last it's election. It's really going to happen this fall, uh, uh, and it's going to happen this time, uh, and it's going to happen, continue to happen until the narrative is resolved. And sometimes I'm afraid that. Um, narrative, these narrative conflicts are not resolvable except through a violent conflict as the civil war was. Um, you know, we certainly hope that we don't come to that, but that's the kind of thing that, that sometimes it feels like that's where we're going. Um, and I think like, um, the U.S. is very lucky in that we, we've had a shared story that seems to, to, to make things, um, work for so many years and we've survived multiple crises without ever getting to that point. Lots of other countries periodically go through this um, every few years because of these fundamental disagreements in narrative. And how do you get everybody to participate in one inclusive narrative that they all feel they can be part of is a deep question. So in some ways, I feel like modern democracy is really a story about narrative inclusiveness. How do you construct a foundational story that includes as many of the voices um, that are arguing as possible and get them to feel that they're sharing in one story. Yeah, yeah. I guess probably since we're, you know, past the end of our hour and everybody has to get on to what else they're doing, I might sort of come to a conclusion with this question for you. You've lived with the Dandelion Dynasty for a decade. Even if readers are yet to see the Veiled th- Throne and the conclusion of the series... Nonetheless, it is done for you to some degree. Is it a bit of a weight off? Are there other things that you can now begin to think about doing? It's absolutely bittersweet. Uh, my, uh, my older daughter just celebrated her 10th birthday, which, um, is actually very close to the 10th, um, year <laughs> anniversary of my starting to work on the Danland dynasty. Yeah, so yeah. I feel very similarly, you know, I, I, I remember when she was born as a tiny little newborn and now she's this, um, uh, young woman with lots of dreams and, uh, does things that I, uh, you know, I'm just uh, amazed at. Um, the, the Danland dynasty is the same way, you know, it, it was, um, in some ways it's, it's really bittersweet because, 
before I started even writing the book, I had already envisioned the final scene of the final book,、uh-huh. and it took me ten years to get to the point where I wrote that scene. And so, when you do that, you feel like you really have completed the journey around the world, or something like that. It really does feel like you've、right. done that.、Um, so, I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of the fact that I, I, I stuck with it for ten years and actually got the whole thing done. There were many times, I'm sure you know,、mm. being creative endeavors where you feel、mm. like you have to just abandon and there's nothing you can do. But you know, every time I pull myself back, oh, you would have you would have a lot of readers on your th- on your throat if you just abandon. <laughs> <laughs>、uh, right. Are, are we? Are, just、uh, curious. Are we still calling it silk punk? I am. I'm still calling it. It's, it's, it's a、mom. neat. It's a neat term. <laughs> Nobody else、it's、is using term, it. It's yours. It's it's mine, and I feel like sometimes I um uh one of the things that my my um that I feel I didn't do a good enough job of is to emphasize what the whole punk thing was about. Uh, because you know I wasn't using it just because it's like the neat suffix to stick onto something. It's not you know Asian steampunk, whatever that、uh. means. Um, the 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 punk part was actually uh probably just as important, if not more important, for my aesthetics because you know it's a story about rebellion. It's a story about Reappropriating old stories to serve new purposes, which you know, as we yeah, talk、right. over and over again, is my key aesthetic. It's about this punkish idea that you don't have to、um, just use something for its intended purpose or for whether other people tell you it's supposed to be. Well, yeah, you can、I、do would, other things with it. I, I would, I, uh, uh, without disagreeing with you, I would have said the cool part about that was silk because you're dealing with silk technologies, which nobody has used, as far as I know, in a It's essentially in a science fiction context, even though it's a fantasy yes. novel. Yes, that's exactly right. Because you know the books, the, the second book especially, sort of says over and over again, the universe is knowable, which is to、yeah. me the foundation of science fictional views of the universe. That's that's kind of the point. But anyway,、uh, the point is, after a whole ten a decade of working on these books, <laughs> I I am. Super happy that I got here, and I'm also ready to move on to something else because a decade is a very long time to、mm. live in one place to、yeah. to try to build one world. I mean, for many、uh, for for months, I felt like I was one of those artisans working on the Sphinx in ancient Egypt、yeah. or something because I'm chiseling, 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 and all I can see is this little patch around me, and the whole thing is so big and sprawling that I have no idea what it looks like anymore. Um, it's not until the whole thing is done that I can step back and see it.、Yeah. And I'm like, it's it's actually pretty cool. I'm I'm really proud I did this, but I, I'm also ready to move on to do something <laughs> else. So I have lots of ideas to to on the next piece,、um, on my next thing,、um, uh-huh. and I'm always going to. I think I already I, I already have、uh, missed the world of Dara,、uh, but I, I think I am ready to let it be on its own for a while. Excellent. Great. Well, we'll all look forward to some more post-human uploaded people at some point. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Well, with th- with that, the Hidden Girl and Other Stories is in stores, online. You can buy it, you can read it, you can get it from your local library or whatever, you, however you consume stories. And the Veiled Throne will be with us by the end of the year, I believe. Is that? I think actually they're now saying、uh, possibly the first month of twenty twenty one. Okay. So, okay. Either, either which way, it's 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 with insight. So, go out and buy books and do what readers do, listeners. And from from our point of view, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Gary and Jonathan.、It's、okay, pleasure. Okay, look forward to seeing you sometime when when disease allows us to travel again. <laughs> yes, right. Whatever that may be. All right. 
Okay. And for now, that was the... And for now, that has been the Good Street Podcast.